Looking back on the presidential election of 2016, there's a moment in particular that sticks out to me. On July 25th, 2015, on ABC's Sunday morning news show, Democratic Representative Keith Ellison of Minnesota was a guest on the panel. Host George Stephanopoulos and the New York Times' Maggie Haberman sat alongside Ellison as they discussed the field of nominees for president. Ellison jumps in, talking about one of the most recent entries on the Republican ticket. That who's, who's terrified of the possibility of, of, of President Trump? Better vote, better get active, better get involved, because this man has got some uh, momentum, and uh, we better be ready for the fact that he might be leading the Republican ticket. Next, <laughs> I know you don't believe that, but I want to go on. <laughs> Stephanopoulos and Haberman are the ones laughing out loud here. They weren't taking him seriously. Not Keith Ellison, and certainly not Donald Trump. I'm Matthew Moore, and you're listening to In His Name, the story of white evangelicals, the Republican Party, and how they came to support and endorse Donald Trump in the 2016 presidential election. Keith Ellison, who now serves as the Attorney General of Minnesota, wasn't the only one taking Donald Trump seriously in those early days. Angie Maxwell was reaching out to voters, encouraging them to think hard about who they were voting for in the Republican primary. I gave a series of talks called The Inevitability of Donald Trump during that primary season, and people thought it was crazy. Maxwell is the author of The Long Southern Strategy and a professor of Southern Studies at the University of Arkansas. She has spent her career studying and researching the patterns and behaviors of politics in the American South. And as she looked at the field of Republican nominees, it seemed pretty clear to her. There were major factors that drove voters in the primary to choose Donald Trump over a crowded field. White Christian nationalism, traditional family values, and racism. You're going to have to hit all three of those things. And you don't have to be those things. That's our false, you know, understanding that there's an authenticity test. You have to perform those things. So how does Donald Trump, a thrice married man who has been accused of adultery countless times, who brags about grabbing women and who claims he has nothing to be forgiven for, earn the trust and support of white evangelicals? Before we get too far into the weeds, we ought to explain how to identify white evangelicals. Robert P. Jones is the CEO and founder of Public Religion Research Institute, a nonprofit that conducts research at the intersection of religion and politics. And for Jones and his colleagues in sociology, they break down white Christians into three categories. White evangelical Protestants, white mainline Protestants, and white Catholics. The distinction between Catholics and Protestants is pretty straightforward, especially from a theological background. The difference between evangelical Christians and mainline Christians is more nuanced theologically. But from a sociological stance, Jones really uses just one tool to separate the two. The main distinguishing feature between white evangelicals and white mainline Protestants in a quantitative, most quantitative research is really 
um, how people answer the question, do you consider yourself to be an evangelical or born-again Christian or not? And if they answer yes to that question, they are put into the white evangelical category. Now, this may sound a little arbitrary, asking just one question to distinguish between two very different categories, but as someone who grew up in the evangelical church, I can assure you, it is not. I was six years old when I had my born-again experience. It was a Sunday night youth service, and there was a group of high schoolers performing a skit about a guy who had died. He was a nice guy. He treated people well held the door open for old ladies, all of the quote-unquote right things. He died in a car crash, and when he showed up to the pearly gates, God turned him away because he hadn't accepted Jesus as his savior, and he went to hell. I was terrified. If a guy that good was still going to end up in hell, then I wanted to do whatever it took to go to heaven. My six-year-old self went up to the altar crying that night, not fully grasping the emotions I was experiencing. A sweet older lady from the church knelt beside me and helped me pray the prayer of salvation that night and told me I had just become a Christian. I didn't fully understand at the time why I had been born again, but I certainly knew that I had had that experience. And like many other evangelicals, who had an experience like that at a young age, I questioned my salvation experience over and over again throughout middle school and high school. Eventually assured I was a born-again Christian by the time I went off to college. Robert P. Jones describes himself as an AWOL academic. He's a seminary graduate, earned a PhD from Emory University, and even spent some time as a college professor before moving to Washington, D.C. to take on the work of polling research and social science. According to Jones, we as human beings see through the lens that our culture gives us. It's nearly impossible to see things in any objective way. Our experiences, our theology, and our culture dramatically shape our perspectives. So if you think about like a camera, especially one of the short field of focus, like like the portrait mode, you know, on a, on a camera, what they do is they make some things like super crisp. You can see the outlines, you can see uh, everything very, very clearly, and other things show up in blur. When we think of white evangelicals specifically, Jones identifies the most prominent lens. Basically, you know, what white evangelicals have is this hyper-individualistic, uh, way of seeing things. So they tend to see things, uh, both problems and solutions, in terms of individuals, right, and not as institutions. That's maybe the clearest way to kind of boil all that down. This Achilles heel of the white evangelical lens, as we'll see throughout this show, is that all problems are seen almost exclusively in terms of individual relationships, and that institutions and government are not to blame. You may have heard the term Christian nationalism over the last few years, but let's take a moment to define that term. This definition comes from Phil Gorski, a professor of sociology and religious studies at Yale University. The basis of the belief is that America was established as a Christian nation. It was founded by, in some sense, four white Christians 
and is in some sense blessed by God with unique power and prosperity. In return for those blessings, America has a duty to spread civilization, Christianity, and freedom around the world. However, this belief comes at a cost. Those blessings are under threat increasingly in the present moment because of the increasing number of non-Christians, non-white people, non-Americans on American soil. What came as a surprise to me is that white Christian nationalism is not a 20th century idea. In fact, it predates, well, our nation. Here we have to really journey much further back into history. First, let's focus on New England. When the Puritans arrived in Massachusetts and Connecticut in the 1600s, they pretty quickly get into conflicts with the native peoples who are here. This is a real dilemma for them, right? When they arrive here, they think of themselves really quite literally as a kind of a new chosen people. They think of New England as a new Israel, as their promised land, which God has given to them. And their journey over the ocean was like Exodus, right? And they were literally fleeing a pharaoh. White people came into a land that was not their own and claimed that God had promised them this place. So then who are the Indians in that story? At first, relations with the native people were good. But as things got more tense and began to sour, the Puritans began to say, well, maybe. They're actually the the Canaanites, the Amalekites, and we're supposed to wipe them out. You don't have to be an Old Testament scholar to know. It's not a good idea to compare the people whose land you've invaded to an enemy tribe from the Bible. Similar events happened further south in the colony of Virginia as well. White people enslaved native people, as well as Africans, that they brought over to America. And their biblical rationale was that they were heathens. They were considered ignorant, lesser than, and property. But then what kind of uh, throws a wrench in everything is that a number of enslaved people start converting to Christianity. And what does that mean? If they're no longer heathens, can they still be slaves? The biblical justification for enslavement gets more complicated when the only thing standing between the master and the slave is race. In the early 20th century, there was a rise of Protestant Christians who would call themselves fundamentalists, designating themselves as people who were ready to do battle royale for the fundamentals. The fight between fundamentalists and their secular counterparts took center stage in July of 1925 with a trial over a science teacher in Dayton, Tennessee. Here's Angie Maxwell again. And literally it was on the front page of every international newspaper. We laid telegraph wire to Hong Kong to cover the trial live. Like it was an event like, you know, we'd never had before in terms of media. The state of Tennessee had passed a law, the Butler Act, which prohibited educators from teaching evolution in state-funded schools. And their football coach taught science, and he was teaching Hunter Civic Biology, the edition that actually had evolution in it. We don't even know if he actually taught those pages, but he was teaching a book that had it in there. The international acclaim for this case happened when William Jennings Bryan, former Secretary of State under President Woodrow Wilson, decided to prosecute the case. The media, somewhat falsely, criticized the region as being backwards 
and too fundamentalist. And what happened is it kind of did transform the region because the criticism made people very defensive. The trial ended up going to the Supreme Court of Tennessee, where it was essentially thrown out and no action was taken for either side of the case. But the damage had been done. And regardless of the case, fundamentalists knew what they needed to do. So we see after the trial, William Jennings Bryan College come into being within five years and a whole network of private religious colleges that spring from that. And so the point is, is instead of trying to change the public sphere, these religious fundamentalists kind of went underground and kind of created their own private space of colleges, radio stations, which turns into television stations and bookstores and like a whole kind of subculture. And they kind of kept out of things. Billy Graham was a Southern evangelical by way of the Chicago suburbs who made his presence known in the late 1930s and early 1940s. After graduating from Wheaton College, he became a pivotal leader in a new national evangelical movement. Here's Daniel Williams, a professor of history at West Georgia University. This was a movement of people who were bothered by fundamentalist separatism. They were conservative Protestants. They wanted to influence the nation in ways that they felt the fundamentalists had not uh, ever since the Scopes trial. One notion was to move away from the term fundamentalist and move towards the term evangelical. Fundamentalists reminded people of the Scopes trial and left believers being viewed as backwards and uneducated. When Christians think of Billy Graham today, it's often through his later years of ministry. He was seen as a stoic leader, an elder statesman, of the Christian faith. But early on, he was dapper and a bit over the top. Tonight, I'm going to ask that you not waver, that you not be indecisive, but that you make a clear-cut choice and choose Jesus Christ as your Lord and Master and Savior. He desperately wanted a meeting with then-President Harry S. Truman. And after many attempts, manages to hold some time with him in the Oval Office. He shows up to the meeting in what was described as a pistachio green suit. And he gets a brief hearing and shows up in the flashy suit and tie. And That's Kristen Kobes dume the author of Jesus and John Wayne, and a professor of history at Calvin University, here to help describe the scene. He goes on to really kind of overstay his welcome and overstep the bounds to chide the president for his beliefs. And then uh, when he's dismissed, it's time to go. He insists on offering a prayer, which goes on for several minutes. But then the real the real problem is right when he gets outside of the Oval Office and there's journalists there, he, he reenacts the meeting and he shares what had happened and he goes so far as to get down on his knees. And, and that was not appreciated by President Truman. He would not get another invitation. In the time between the Scopes trial and Pistachio Gate, fundamentalist Christians were wrestling with what their faith looked like politically. Despite the faux pas with Graham and President Truman, believers had confidence that they would soon be able to influence politics on the national level. By the 1952 presidential election, they were making their move with former Army General Dwight D. Eisenhower. It was with this presidential election 
that evangelical voters first began to collectively agree on and support a candidate, with Billy Graham leading the charge. Graham even said at one point, the Christian people of America are going to vote as a block for the man with the strongest moral and spiritual platform, regardless of his views on other matters. I believe we can hold the balance of power. They felt very much at the center of things or as though they were moving into the center of things. After they felt marginalized in the 1920s in the wake of the Scopes trial, after they felt marginalized when they weren't able to seize control of mainline denominations. And and so this was an era where they, they're really kind of coming into their own, at least it feels that way. And, and that's because the values that they hold are shared more widely. From one perspective, it's easy to see why white evangelicals supported Eisenhower as president. During his administration, he became the first president to attend the National Prayer Breakfast. He had the phrase, one nation under God, added to the Pledge of Allegiance. He even had, in God we trust, added to all American currency. But Eisenhower was a bit wary of becoming too closely aligned with white evangelicals. Sure, he believed that religious faith was important, but he had no preference on the particulars of the faith. In fact, Eisenhower was even quoted as saying that, Our form of government has no sense unless it is founded in a deeply felt religious faith. And I don't care what it is. What he meant by that, and it it was a bit of a clumsy phrasing. Daniel Williams again. But what he meant was that within this broadly shared Judeo-Christian tradition, he really didn't care if someone was an observant Jew or was a Unitarian or was a deeply devout evangelical Southern Baptist, that all of those were compatible with American democracy. Eisenhower was president in the midst of the Cold War. And to him, religion of any capacity was the antidote to communism. But white evangelicals saw Eisenhower's support of civil religion and took it to mean their brand of Christian nationalism was becoming the new norm. Once they got one nation under God and in God we trust, they were ready for more. Billy Graham continued to be a faith leader and trusted confidant for every president until his passing in 2018, Democrats and Republicans alike. But by the 1960s, there was a new faith leader on his way up the political ladder, Jerry Falwell. We're talking about a very different wing of of evangelicalism and one that, that Billy Graham would have had little association with in the 1960s. And in turn, they would have had very little association with Billy Graham because they believed that he was too ecumenical. He was compromising on too many fronts. That's next time. In his name. In his name. In his name. In his name is produced and edited by me, Matthew Moore with help from Rick Stockdale. Our theme song is In Your Name by Tyson Motzenbacher, courtesy of Tooth & Nail Records. 